Hey listeners, I know you'll love this exclusive offer from our friends at Top Resume. For a limited time, you'll get 25% off any resume writing package. These packages match you with an industry expert resume writer to craft a resume built to pass the AI applicant filters and impress people on the other side. Use code HIGHERED25 at topresume.com slash resume dash writing to immediately improve your number one tool in getting that next great higher ed job. This is the Higher Ed Jobs Podcast. I'm Andy Hibble. I'm the Chief Operating Officer and one of the co-founders of Higher Ed Jobs. And I'm not joined today by Kelly Sherwin, our Director of Editorial Strategy, because she decided to take a family vacation to wonderful Los Angeles. We miss you, Kelly, but we're happy you're having fun in LA. We're joined today by Martin Atkins, and we are actually doing our first remote podcast in a amazingly cool place called the Museum of Post-Punk and Industrial Music here on the south side of Chicago in Bridgeport, which as a proud White Sox fan is the home of the Chicago White Sox as well. Martin is a professor at Millican University in Decatur, Illinois, but Martin's also a professional musician. But for a further description, Martin, how would you describe yourself as a professional? Well, thanks and welcome. Yeah, what's my job title? I would tell my students, you need five things. That's great you're doing that one thing with the mandolin or the whatever. What are the other four things? So I'm a professional drummer. Started playing when I was nine years old. I joined a band with Johnny Rotten in 1979, Johnny Rotten from the Sex Pistols, called Public Image Limited. And I spent five years in that band. I had quite a storied career bouncing around from different pretty visible bands, uh, Killing Joke, Ministry, Nine Inch Nails. I'd play on a Grammy award-winning track called Wish. I'm in the head like a whole video with Nine Inch Nails. Trent Reznor is in my band Pig Face, a band I started in 1990, which features probably six or 700 different musicians at this point, which is kind of like, for your older listeners, it's my Rolodex. You might call somebody to go and have coffee, go and have a drink. Maybe I call people to jump on stage and go crazy with my band Pig Face. It's my social interaction with my fellow musicians and with audiences. I started a record label in 1988 called Invisible. That's still going in a different form than it used to. I have my own recording studio. I've written three books about the music business. And as you said, I'm now a professor at Millican. I've been teaching for probably 17 or 18 years now. I have my master's degree, and now I founded the Museum of Post-Punk and Industrial Music on the south side of Chicago. Thank you for sharing your story. It's really kind of indicative of the topic that we want to hit today, which is a practical music education. Obviously, when you started your career, the end goal was not to end up at an institution of higher education, but the practical career that you had landed you in that spot, and now you get to teach and share in many ways, kind of like Pigface, with many other collaborators, in this case students, learning about the music industry is one of your primary goals. Well, uh, I don't want to disagree with you <laughs> two minutes in. Oh, okay, then let's, let's do this. How do you want me to rephrase? Let's scrap no, no, that. No, no, and re- we can rephrase it's the fine. question. It's fine. <laughs> no, I'm, I was just I was using that as a, like, I don't know that I'm trying to teach the music business. I think I'm simply using the super cool, engaging platform of the music business, music in general, as the way to camouflage students learning about themselves, about logistics, about juggling flaming bags of things. 
and making triumph in the face of adversity, because that's what the music business is. It isn't my goal, I think, to have people know contracts. Let me tell you about contracts, logistics, mileage, but miles per gallon on a bus on a Tuesday, weather patterns over Florida. That's not my goal. I think I'm trying to get students to a different place for themselves through music business. I guess I shouldn't be telling everybody it's just a camouflage. Because if I said to people, today, we're learning spreadsheets, geography, and fuel efficiency across five different vehicles, people would punch me in the face and run. But if I say, 10 years ago, 50 Cent won on the road for his debut album with Warner Brothers. <gasps> right, now, he's in a bus. Should he be in a bus with Nintendo in the back? Or is he going to be in a Prius? Because a bus gets nine miles to the gallon, a Prius is 50. But anyway, accidentally, as far as the students are concerned, they learn all of this stuff. Well, thank you for disagreeing with me. Okay. Because I think that does a much better <laughs> job of framing the, the place where, where I was trying to get to, which is okay. in academia, there's such a pedagogy of using different methods to teach. And I think some of those methods to teach, thankfully, are developing. And thankfully, I think in, in your particular case, it's actually something that sets your teaching apart and the experience that your students have. We saw a professor at a pretty elite institution recently who taught accounting, but he did so in videos disguised as a potato. You don't see many counting teaching potatoes right. on a daily basis, at least right. I don't. But where you're at, how much more common over the 17 years you've been teaching have your methods become as opposed to when you started this way? None, maybe slightly. And that's maybe that's unfair of me because my head is in my world. But there's a place in Denmark, Norway, I don't know, over there that is called Chaos Pilot. And it's a school and they teach their students to surf on chaos. Holy crap. Oh, can I say that? Yes. Okay. Yes. I'm like, oh, what? So we don't know what the chaos is, but we know there's going to be some. And the students will be able to surf on it. I'm like, this is fantastic. I called them up. I was on a layover, I think, in Amsterdam. And I called them up. I'm like, I'm reading about your school and left a message. The guy calls me back two weeks later. This is somebody from the Chaos Pilot. It's kind of noisy. It's, I'm calling you from Vietnam. I'm like, oh, my goodness. I, I didn't mean to speak to you on your vacation. Perhaps you call me back when you're, when you're back at the office. He said, no, I'm here with students in a helicopter. I'm like, okay, uh, uh, what are you doing? What's the plan? It's like, oh, it's something. <laughs> and, and, and I just thought, yes. So that's, that, I think that's something that I've aspired to is, you know, there's a military term that plans don't survive first boots on the ground. And the only constant thing is change or Heraclitus, all of this stuff. So if that's true, then it's kind of admirable and, and useful to talk about surfing on chaos. I think one of the things, this is kind of punk rock. I'm happy to tell you a bit about punk if you want. But one of the punk rock things that I carry with me is it's not correct for me to say I don't care because I obviously do care a lot about a lot of things. But I'm not sure that I care about my reputation or being judged on a student project. Whereas, I think there might be people in an elevated state in academia who are very protective 
of their reputations. So if I was to put together a, a violin concerto or something, I'd let the students figure it out and decide for themselves, we need 15 more rehearsals before tomorrow because we're kind of rubbish. If they decide that for themselves, that's great for them. But sometimes I see academics drilling down harder and harder because of the perceived effect of the result on their reputations. So I'm constantly looking at everything I've done to see how I can use it. And one of the things I can use about all of the things I've done is not be so uptight about the results. So I'll say to students, there's no grade for this event we're doing at Reggie's Rock Club or down in Decatur. There's no grade. Screw the grades, which of course they love. And all there is, is how many people show up. Like the yardsticks we use in the professional world outside of university. Well, that's so, that now that no one's sleeping because you know, we're all on board with this no grades business. We're just going to use this regular yardstick of number of people buying tickets. And then they can deal with it. Nobody sleeps. Sometimes people get agitated, but it creates a way of cutting through all of the noise to like, hey, just dig deep and get on with it. It's amazing to hear that perspective because, and this is definitely for my wife, Elizabeth, that she always likes to remind me when we go on a cross country trip and we're in the car, it's all about, for me, making good time. You got to make good time. I mean, that's what you're judged by. <laughs> and you have to get to the destination. You need to get there, hopefully, early if you're making good time. But, and Elizabeth likes to remind me, no, Andy, it's, it's about the journey. It sometimes seems in, in the process of wanting to achieve results and giving kids a tangible experience that they can take to their lifetime that we're focused on the results and forget that understanding the nuance of the journey is probably a much more important skill that they can translate to. And it's, it's fun that you brought chaos in here. The chaos that is the music. If you want to choose the music business, there is no order in the music business. There is no like in academia. There's no single path. If you maintain these sorts of metrics and you publish in these places and you achieve this result at this stage of your career, you will be, and let's say your goal is to be a tenured faculty member, a tenured faculty member. To be successful in music and the music business as well, you have to understand the nuance of the journey. Well, yes, but that all works as long as, so So the academ academia is seemingly less chaotic and those paths work unless your institution goes out of business, which just happened at Lincoln, in Lincoln, Illinois. That we're done. We were hacked. There was a piracy ransom thing and some other things happened, of course. We're done. So I don't know what happens to everybody that had a clear path. I don't think there's any such thing as security or safety. I just don't. I think that our safety is within ourselves. I mean, people all over the world are learning that. That's so true. And, and, and really the perception of safety and security and norms, if you follow them, these will result. Life doesn't follow blueprints. Life follows life. So my friend Jim, he runs a Ruby programming conference up in Madison. I have no idea how we started talking. He was doing planning a West Coast trip. And it all made perfect sense. You know, I'm like, oh, you've done a really good job of like everything. Now you need a day 
with some unexpected stuff in there. It's like, what are you talking about? I'm like, well, you're going to be in, I don't know if it was San Francisco or Portland or Seattle. I'm like, well, you've got to stay at the Ace Hotel. He's like, oh, where's that? Because it, it's a slightly more of a chain now, but not really. And they have turntables in the room. And if you're going to have turntables in the room, there's a selection of vinyl. And the downstairs cafe is kind of cool. Like, well, you've got to stay there and hang out. Who knows who you're going to meet there? He hadn't planned that. And so I just said, look, if there's no straight line from A to B, why do you have this straight line that you just planned? You know, why don't you plan some kinks in the in the road here and be aware don't just wander off, but be aware and, and collide with some interesting people, which I think he ended up, like he went a little bit wild with that. He came back and was like, yeah, this guy just released a hip-hop album. He's performing in our office next week. We're part of his Kickstarter. I'm like, okay, then. Good. I mean, it was great, you know. But, um, but the, the, once you start to do that, then you start to do more of that. And you start to... I, I'm relearning all of the lessons I think people thought I'd learned before I told them the stuff. Like, great things happen when you do stuff. Nothing happens when you don't. And people are like, oh, heavy. You know, all right. But it's just, you know. So last week, there was some tables set up down at Millican. Community Awareness, the Northeastern Community Fund had a table. CASA, which... uh protects uh, uh, children, you know, a, a couple of community courses. And I went over and talked. I'm shy. And I go over and talk to these people. I'm like, hey, how's it going? And um, they told me all about their causes, their community funds and everything. I'm like, well, okay, we're doing this thing, and I've got an event tomorrow night at this bar down the street from the university. You're very welcome to come. Just, just, to, just to kind of tell them something about what we had going on. And one of the women was like, oh, my goodness, my, my partner's in a band. We're there. And not only did she show up, but she showed up with like three friends, which was a decent part of a 100-person audience on a Wednesday night, you know. So it's always these tiny things that accumulate to become larger things. And sometimes when we're looking at a larger problem, the tiny things seem not important, but you just need more of the tiny things. And I'm still trying to navigate that and remind myself of that. Are you looking for a great resume? Because for a limited time, our friends at Top Resume are giving you 25% off any resume writing package. Use code HIGHERED25 at topresume.com slash resume dash writing to immediately improve your number one tool in getting that next great higher ed job. So speaking of the tiny things and maybe looking at some of the things that I'm, I'm looking at right now around me. Yeah. And it's interesting to me as I look around um, the museum experience and the inspiration for the Museum of Post-Punk and Industrial Music, where did it come from? Why, why this? Why now? <laughs> yeah. That's like, I think my wife would say the same thing. And I can be frivolous, and it's also quite serious. Frivolously, if I hadn't set up the museum, I'd be like arrested as a hoarder. You know, so I mean, that's easy. And now people, now I can say, if you hoard it, you've hoarding, why don't you like, no, I'm curating, you know, you know, so, so one is I like to use different words, you know, so we put together a 112 page magazine. I call it a catalog. Ooh, 
You know, oh, it's a catalog. I mean, it's a magazine, but we've, I've been saying magazine since I was 11, you know. So it's nice to use these different words. The other part of this is what can I do with the things that I have as a starting point to differentiate what I'm doing? So I'll tell students, for instance, if you have the skill of screen printing, you can do something. And then as you can see around here, and this is perfect for a podcast because nobody can see what I'm talking about, but all around us, there's PPIM lamps, right? They're up there, they're behind you, Andrew, and they're over there. So my skill of screen printing is like, we can have lots of lamps. So it looks like, wow, they've really got it together with their branding. No, we bought some lamps at Target and screen printed them downstairs. It took a minute and cost like $4 total. So, But we look like, wow, there's lamps everywhere. It must have cost a fortune. No. But so I knew I had a large collection that involved me because I've been in a lot of bands and I'm old. But I thought, what can I do with this? If I use it as a starting point, I'm halfway to something really super cool that's beyond me. And so I did. So my collection became the evidence. It wasn't just if somebody sent me $125 as a founder's donation or a t-shirt or sometimes a ticket stub, whatever. It wasn't just going to be on a wall. Here's the ticket stub that was gifted to us. And here's a t-shirt. People saw what was here and wanted their things to be on the same wall in the same building. It's really interesting. This one guy, Brad, called me up. He said, I have a suit worn by Ogre. He's an industrial performer. Worn by Ogre in 2015, signed by him, covered in paint and stage blood. Okay, well, we'll send it. But there was this strange three months, almost a courtship, where he's like, well, I don't know. And then he put it back in the closet. And that bothered him, that the suit could be seen, but he put it back in the closet. And then it worried him. He actually told me he had a nightmare that he died, which, I mean, I would think that would be bad enough. But his nightmare was actually that his kids came in, went through the closet, found this paint-splattered suit, said, well, this is irreparable. Throw it in the trash. <laughs> so he was woke up horrified that this prized possession might just be thrown in the trash. So it's almost like this Disney movie of like, you can keep it for yourself and destroy it or give it to everyone. And, and so he ended up sending me his suit. He could have just flown out with it. But a month later, I guess he was having separation anxiety. He flew out to see the suit. It's out front, surrounded by related items in a very respectful way. And he was relieved. So this has been a journey for me as well of what even is this? I thought it was going to be the end of my creativity. And that seems logical. Like, well, I've done it. Here it is. Have a look. That's 1980 over there. There's a ticket from Fenway Park when I saw the Boston Red Sox in 1980. But it's actually fueled my creativity. It's fueled conversations. Some of the best hangs I've had with people I've known since 93, 94 have been here. So it's still unfolding for me. It makes me want to serve food here fire up the espresso machine and do different things here where the museum is so important that we can let it sit in the background and do something else in here and have people discover this stuff. That makes great sense. And uh, I feel somewhat hard pressed to make this a reverent comment here, but obviously you just solved the whole hoarding issue and started a new like cleaning phase that 
hey, look at the item and determine, would your kids just throw this away? If the answer is yes, then you need to find someplace else for it, pretty much. Well, it, it's weird. There are, you could call them vibes or spirits, or it, the intangible is tangible. There are people who I've made music with who aren't here anymore, but the music is here. So this stuff, I don't mean to sound like some occultist, you know, when I say we can conjure up the spirits, but music does conjure up the vibe and the memory and the creativity. And I've forgotten your, completely forgotten your question. There, there was no question. It was just kind oh. of an irreverent remark. Oh, okay. <laughs> We've talked a little bit about this and I think it'd be fun for you to share, but as an educator, how have you brought students and, and learning into the museum? I know I've given some presentations where I'll say, you can print a $17 bill. Well, you go up and down action with a squeegee to print a t-shirt, cost $3. No, no squeegees were hurt in this podcast. Oh, okay. <laughs> um, you, you print a t-shirt, sell it for 20 you're printing a $17 bill. And some students are like, okay, they appreciate the side hustle of that. And then I'll point, I might have a slide of some of the scenery behind me, these dollar bills, which is illegal, by the way, to print these dollar bills, even though they're three feet long, it's technically counterfeiting. That, that's why we haven't disclosed the actual address of the museum. And now you're a party to this act. And now, 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 now you're photo. Yeah, so yeah. Sure. So, so this is scenery from a band called Killing Joke in 1990. Whether the art is good or not, the scenery was used in a video, now it's memorabilia. And I have cut these out, but I wouldn't sell one of these for less than $500 and then probably not even then. So now that same action with the squeegee, not harmed in this podcast, it's now $497. Now I've got people's attention and I'll point to other things in here. The lamps, for instance, how you can uplift your image and your vibe and your branding by just going with a squeegee, printing a lamp. And so that's good. But for me to stand in my museum and say, I left school when I was 16 without any qualifications whatsoever. I've got my master's degree now. I've got five different brands of coffee with dark matter. I've written three books. I've been all over the world. I keynoted Melbourne Music Week and raised four kids and I'm a terrible DJ. And if I can do all of those things, I guarantee you, you can do it too. And that, the theater of that is just lovely going in that direction, really, when you look at music and the experience of music and the experience of live music, what a practical way of trying to say, you know, we talk about the, the concert t-shirt, suburban Chicago schools, when a big band comes to town, you can pretty much count the next day, good portion of the high school who's gone to the concert is going to wear the concert t-shirt. Right. But really for, for fans of music, pulling out that t-shirt and, and I have t-shirts from the eighties. T-shirts that I wore for various important parts of my life. The T-shirt's not the action created by the squeegee, but the memory of what that experience was for me in experiencing it live. Right. The importance of being able to capture some of those moments. We spend our lives nowadays with a cell phone with us at all points, capturing whatever moment of the day that we want at any given time. Mm -hmm. It's in some ways amazing. In other ways, it's a different life than the life that folks our age have grown up with, but being able to to speak to the other part of the music experience that helps you maybe capture that memory in a, in a way as a fan is pretty important. But it's interesting to hear from the other side of the equation as the performer, it's the same thing. Being able to have that experience as a band. 
Right. Maybe taking a step in that direction, we were talking a little bit about pig face before we started, and you had mentioned, and this came as a shock to me, a two-part question. Uh, okay. You had mentioned that there have been six weddings on stage with pig face. Share yeah. a little bit about that. As you're sharing a little bit about that, give some thought to what advice have you offered married couples as they come to the pig face stage about getting married? Huh. <laughs> well, okay. Like so many things, one thing is born out of an idea or just commerce. I was probably sitting where you are now. This used to be my office 15 years ago. Somebody from our distribution company called. I think they sent a fax. That's my second reference to the past. Rolodex fax machines. We were distributed by Caroline EMI distribution. And we got this fax saying, come on, everybody, do more like this. There was a band from Chicago called Local H. Oh, yeah, they they're fantastic. This, yeah. They used this new technology, this new platform called eBay, and they eBayed a gig. Everybody, everyone's in uproar, you know, we'll play anywhere you want, place a bid, your basement, your back garden, whatever. And there was some, uh, there was some language, it must be on the, broadly on the route of a tour, we'll deliver within a year, blah, 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 whatever. It was a really great idea. It got them a lot of publicity, but you can't just eBay a gig because they just did it. And I don't think there's much mileage in being a follower in my business. So I'm like, we're going to eBay a wedding. And it will include a case of beer, a bottle of spirits, some champagne, of course, admission for 25 people with a souvenir pass and this and that. And the couple get to choose at what point, like at the beginning of the show, which we kind of pushed for that, or halfway through, that happened once and it was terrible. It really just destroyed everything. <laughs> you know, people are just like, boo, get out what's happening. The bride has caught a shoe in the, you know. <laughs> but the first wedding we did, suddenly you're at somebody's wedding. It's not like the wedding's over here. We, we're tuning our instruments. You're tuning your instruments at somebody's wedding. The bride had requested wine coolers. Like, okay, so we got a case and ran out. So like, so you get an idea of what was going on. And we got, we sent out for more wine coolers. For those out there who don't know what wine coolers are, maybe you could explain that. Oh, what are they? Like, like wine with like Sprite? <laughs> Seltzery wine? Yeah, yeah, yeah. Before the, the seltzers were all the rage, the wine cooler was, was oh. king. Well, that's my third reference from the past. Go. I know. Yeah. Uh, it's like a, it's just like a Zima, a clear beer. <laughs> hey, there we go. So, um, I don't think any of them actually have wine in them. Right. It's all right, right. So, um, but so suddenly you become friends with these people who are on, who got married on stage. Three members of Pigface are ordained. So that was kind of like, hey, what can we do with what we have? Right. We didn't need to spend money to bring somebody in. And it was theater. I think at some point I thought like Oprah will be all over this, which of course she wasn't. But you just accidentally start to reach out to people. I think the last wedding that we had in Chicago was a couple, and this is where things get deeper. Neither of their families would sanction the wedding. Back then I thought, well, I was thrilled that they chose Pigface to tie the knot. But really, I should have been, how tough is that? where the only place you think you can get married is on stage with pig face. I still remember that 
the bride walked onto the stage on a bed of red rose petals. It was pretty wild. So you create these moments, which I guess I'd love to talk to some fans who are at these weddings, because then I don't, not that I would anyway, because it would be pointless, but then I don't have to grab the mic and go, shut up, everybody. This is important. It clearly is important because someone's getting married in a minute. Would you shut up? And it creates a reverence and a, we're obviously respecting the couple. And now the audience is involved in this thing. So, yeah. And if I could digress for a moment, one of my favorite hilarious moments. So I'm a crazy drummer. So I, they, they requested that there be some kind of a beat and some atmospheric music while they're, who giveth this woman? You know, whatever. And so I'm playing. And somebody in the party had forgotten the petals. So they come to me, petals, petals. So I grab Jim, who's my drum tech. Petals, petals. So he looks around and goes and grabs the guitarist's petals, unplugs them. He's thinking, change the batteries. The guitarist is in the middle of a solo at the Metro. 1,100 people just starts kicking Jim. Like, what are you, like the opposite of what a crew person should do. Instead of keeping the the performance moving forward, he's act, actively destroying the performance. So then he's like, okay. And I'm like, petals, petals, petals. So he's like, okay, it's not the guitarist, but it must be the bass player's pedal. So he goes, oh, oh, Paul Raven, who's sadly no longer with us, he grabs Paul's bass. I think Paul nearly kicked him off the stage. And then Jim comes over and I'm like, petals, petals. And he realized, oh, when he came back upstairs with the box of petals, it's amazing that if that marriage did survive, because it was 15, 20 years ago, the sour emotions where he, he sprinkled these, they weren't petals of goodwill and joy and future. They were the petals of spite and <laughs> like, you know, yeah. Sorry, that's got no, nothing to do with. And then you find when you take a few steps over here and a few steps over there, oh my goodness, we'd never have that story if it wasn't for trying to do something. No matter what happens, sometimes you end up with a really great story. I'm going to let you off the hook for matrimonial advice, but okay. this one I won't let you off the hook for, which okay. is advice to job seekers. For somebody who has served to hire folks, as well as somebody who has looked for jobs himself, what would your best advice be to somebody who's looking for a job in higher education? Um, okay. So you can interpret this in a higher ed way. But my easy answer is don't. And at the same time, always be looking. Hey, listeners, stay tuned in the coming weeks for when we'll be posting the second half of our interview with the iconic Martin Atkins at the Museum of Post-Punk and Industrial Music. 